Welcome to the Leading Insights podcast, the podcast that tells leadership stories from across the public sector and beyond. My name is Thomas Lamont, and I'm a dental consultant and clinical lead at Dundee Dental Hospital and School, as well as being a senior lecturer at the University of Dundee and an advisor at Ness. And on this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Professor John Gibson, who just so happens to be a mentor of mine and a very, very dear friend. John, welcome to the podcast. Thomas, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honoured and I'm humbled to be part of this um, remarkable uh, network that you've developed uh, through these podcasts. Um, it's a privilege to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So, John, to, to kick us off, can you tell me a little bit about your career pathway across the public service? Yes, yeah, sure thing. Um, I grew up uh, in Kilmarnock um, in a council house, um, which is actually quite an important part of my story because um, I grew up aware of significant poverty round about me. And I actually think that that um, awareness of poverty um, and what it does um, to individuals and families um, has been a major determinant of um, where I've chosen to go uh, with my career. Um, so I went up to the University of Glasgow to start with and did dentistry for five years. Um, and during that time, I decided that I wanted to be an academic and that I wanted to teach um, and that I wanted to pursue a career in oral medicine. And at that time, uh, you had to be doubly qualified in medicine and dentistry um, to get a senior role in oral medicine. And so um, I went back and I did medicine. And when I qualified, I did um, some medical jobs and then became a lecturer in uh, oral medicine in the University of Glasgow, um, where I completed my PhD. Um, and my PhD was in clinical immunology, essentially. Um, so I had developed an interest in um, allergic disorders, uh, the head and neck, and that remained a, a lifelong interest for me. Um, I then became a senior lecturer consultant in Glasgow um, and for various reasons I decided to take a year out um, and I took a year out and I studied theology for a year um, and of course everyone in academia told me that's your career over you'll never get back in again and uh, it, that's a really important message um, to say to those who are listening today because um, you follow your heart um, and don't let other people tell you what to do it's your life um, and it's your opportunity to live the life that you feel is appropriate for you. Um, and so please don't listen. Uh, by all means, take advice, um, but take multiple bits of advice and then lay it out and decide what's appropriate for you. So I took a year out and it was a great um, opportunity, really. Um, it really was. Um, and then I started working uh, with NHS Education for Scotland as an Associate Postgraduate Dean. Um, I also worked uh, at the Edinburgh Dental Institute uh, for four years um, in uh, an opportunity arose there to build the Department of Oral Medicine there. And I then was asked to go and do something similar in the University of Dundee. So I was at the University of Dundee for nine years um, and uh, that was a great opportunity uh, to teach um, human disease and oral medicine, uh, but also uh, clinical practice. And then my alma mater of Glasgow called and uh, wondered if I might wish to be um, professor of medicine in relation to dentistry in the University of Glasgow. And um, so I joined a very excellent uh, clinical research and academic team in the University of Glasgow's dental uh, school. 
and I was there and uh, I then pursued an opportunity to uh, lead as head of the Institute of Dentistry um, in the University of Aberdeen. And so I went there um, and had uh, 15 months or so there um, until life changed a little bit for me. And I'm sure we'll talk about this shortly. Um, but I had 15 months uh, in a very privileged position of leading the Institute of Dentistry in Aberdeen. Um, and that was um, a very, very enjoyable role. Um, during that time, at, at various stages, um, I had three opportunities to work um, in Central America. Um, so I did three, three month spells um, in El Salvador and Guatemala as part of Scottish medical teams during their civil wars. Um, and that was a remarkable experience um, and really put leadership to the test. Um, but also um, I spent some time in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and that really gave me an opportunity to prioritise what I wanted to do with my family and my life. Um, and uh, enjoyed that time. What a fantastic varied career which just gives a real example for all the listeners about the variety of roles that are available across academia and the NHS. It's really inspiring. I think, I think, I think Thomas, some would say that I just kept moving until the feds caught up with me. I think that's <laughs> Wanted to tour, to tour Scotland and beyond. What does good leadership look like to you? And have you had any great role models throughout your time? Um, I've had very bad role uh, modelling. Um, and I went through a, a phase where I experienced significant bullying and harassment. Um, and, and so I know what bad role modelling looks like. Um, and, and that probably helps that question as much as looking at the positive end of it. So I, I know what um, a leader does not look like. Um, but at the other end, um, I have a very clear, as a Christian faith, um, a man of Christian faith, um, uh, I, I take a lot of my modelling from, from Jesus himself. Um, and, and what Jesus brings to the table is this remarkable picture of servant leadership. Um, and it's something I think that we've really lost sight of in leadership. So you can spend tens of thousands of pounds and go off and, and go on these executive coaching and training courses. Um, and you are trained to be a leader. Um, I wonder how much the health service and other public health sectors would benefit if we trained people to be servants um, and to, to serve one another. Um, and, and I think, therefore, what good leadership looks like is being a servant. Um, it looks like uh, developing skills and abilities um, to wash people's feet, to literally and metaphorically wash people's feet, um, people going through the hardest of times, the most difficult of times in family, personal and professional circumstances, to walk with those individuals, to love those individuals, to care for those individuals. And the corollary of that within an institutional setting is that the institutional setting becomes a place of, uh, of love and, and a place where people can genuinely grow uh, into who and what they are um, as individuals. That's really inspiring and important considering the trauma, for lack of a better word, that society at large and uh, the workplaces have been going through over the last few years. I'd like to talk now about 2019 and, and your life when it get turned upside down. And I'd like to to talk about Cameron. I, I just 
obviously you and I have spoke many times about this, but I wonder if you can share with the listeners of the podcast uh, your wonderful son Cameron's story. Yeah, and, and, and I will share that, but I, I wonder if it's a moment for reflection as well, because one of the things that I encounter a great deal um, in, in, in just living of life is that I encounter judgment um, at, at many levels, and and I judge. So please don't think I'm I'm saying that if everyone else is judges and I don't judge. We all judge, um, and often that judging is unreasonable and, and inappropriate. Um, and so, if I raise in this podcast that um, my son died by suicide, I wonder what the immediate judgment is um, of those who are listening in. And 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 it's a question I want to ask uh, because. People may think, well, this is a podcast about leadership, and this man couldn't even lead his own family because he's lost a son to suicide. Um, and, I, and I wonder what your reaction and judgment is there. Um, and that goes back to my original statement about um, what you bring into your leadership or what you bring into your workplace um, or your public sphere um, as an individual. Uh, because if you simply walk through your life bringing judgment, um, and calling people to accountability because of that judgment, um, then leadership's going to be a tough journey for you. Um, and if you just accept that the individuals in front of you find themselves with adverse circumstances, often through no flaw or no fault of their own, um, then that's a much more powerful place to be able to reach out with a hug um, and support that individual through the most difficult times. So I just simply leave that thought on the table um, about judgment um, and, and, and where individuals who are listening uh, feel they are most particularly judging and, and how their leadership role might develop. Were they, were they able to walk through that judgment into, into a better place uh, beyond judgment? So, so I, I so appreciate your question about Cameron because um, it's so important that we talk about him because he's no longer here. So um, he died in the early hours of the 20th of October, 2019. Um, he was a young veterinary surgeon. He was 24 years old. He was a year and a bit out of university, um, and he was doing the job that he absolutely um, adored and had worked towards his whole life, which was large animal vetting. And we have no idea um, why Cameron took his life. Um, his girlfriend, um, his colleagues, um, his huge circle of friends round about him, and we as his family have no idea. Um, he didn't leave a note, but only 20% of people um, leave a note. Um, and he had a remarkable day on the Saturday. Um, he did lots of things that he so loved doing, outdoors, climbing mountains. He was a great outdoor enthusiast. Um, and somewhere in the early hours of the 20th of October on the Sunday morning, um, he took his life. Um, and it's been utterly shocking. I will never forget that moment at 7.45am when two police officers rang my doorbell and said, are you the father of Cameron David Roger Gibson? I said, I am. And he said, then you need to sit down, sir, because we have some shocking news for you. Um, Cameron is dead, and it appears that he has taken his life. Um, and suicide happens in other families, doesn't it? It happens across the road. It happens in other communities. It happens in other workplaces. It doesn't happen to you. Um, and so what happened for me in those moments was um, this remarkable sense of uh, my world imploding. We, we are a very close family. Malcolm has two other 
is Cameron Rother has two other siblings, Malcolm and Ailey, and the five of us are a very close family. Um, and that also includes Malcolm and Ailey's um, uh, partners. Um, so the seven of us, in a sense, and Cameron's girlfriend as well. So we're, we're, we're a close family. We are a close family. Um, and so for this member of our family who was a man who lit up rooms, he was a man who brought life and, and delight to those who knew him. For him to say, I don't want to be around anymore, I don't want to be in this world. But for us not to understand the reasons for that is is, is deeply difficult and, and, and deeply shocking. And so um, despite my assumption that I was going back to work, um, after six months, um, I realized that um, I, I was struggling a bit. And, and, and the thing that I was struggling most with was my strategic functioning of my, of my brain, I guess the thing that I was employed particularly to do. Um, and then at eight months, um, I had a complete suicidal crisis myself um, and made an attempt on my life. Um, and even to say that is, is deeply, deeply shocking. Um, but I'm, the great Professor Gibson then entered a, a phase of acute psychiatric care um, with psychological services as well as psychiatric services and um, went through a really, really difficult time. Um, when I was not sure at all whether I wanted to be in this world um, or not. Um, and that's very difficult. Um, and I guess the benefit of that, <laughs> always looking to um, make things uh, sound, sound and look better perhaps, um, the benefit of that is that I now have a very solid understanding um, of that suicidal crisis for others um, and, and what they're facing and indeed what Cameron faced um, in, in that moment of suicidal ideation and and let's not fool ourselves um so the work that rory o'connor a professor of psychological medicine in glasgow has done 2018 demonstrates very clearly that young men and women under the age of 35 in scotland it's a scottish study 20 percent of you listening under the age of 35 20 percent one in five of you and um, will have significant suicidal ideation um, and how you handle that how you Hope with that, what you do with that elephant in the room, I believe will largely determine whether you stay alive um, or whether you choose to be alive. Um, and so for us, with the new charity that we've established, so much of it focuses on the educational aspects of that. So um, how do we uh, deal with that elephant in the room when it appears? Um, how did Cameron or how might Cameron have dealt with that differently had there been an opportunity at school, college or university um, to hear about suicide safety planning and what you do with that elephant in the room. Because the thing that you don't do is try to chase it away. Because when you try to chase the elephant away, it gets bigger, it becomes polka dot with pink and purple spots, and it just grabs your attention more and more. And so what we want to do is suicidal safety planning in schools, colleges and universities to allow individuals to say, I see you, um, I see where you're at, uh, you're entering my life, but you know what? I don't want you to be there. And I want to introduce this other thought. I want to introduce this other process, uh, which may allow me to move from this moment um, to a moment of safety. And so the whole idea of the charity is we've developed this concept of safe spaces. Um, and so safe spaces um, would mean different things for different people. So for Cameron, who died in his works van, his works van, his vet van, was not a safe space for him. How might we work with the veterinary profession to make those vehicles safer? And that work's already underway. 
but it might be inside your own head that needs to be a safe space. For me, who underwent a period of bullying and harassment at work, work was not a safe space. So how might this charity work with, with individuals who are facing that to make their workplace um, a safe space? And so we're, we're developing this concept, safe spaces at the Canmore Trust, um, all one word.co.uk. And uh, it would be wonderful if those listening in could take a look at that because it might actually be of some value to them, and um, particularly if you're the one in five um, listening to, to, to this podcast, that that might directly benefit. And, and please take a look at it and indeed uh, go ahead and do that. So I, I, I want to talk to you more about the Canmore Trust and, and the journey that you're, you're currently on, but I wonder if, if you don't mind if, if we talk about the events immediately after Cameron took his own life and what that translated to you as a family and the sort of support systems that are currently in place just now. Yeah. Um, so the shocking reality is that um, I have still to, to receive my NHS psychological support. Um, so I've waited over two years for that, um, and I understand I'm still held on a waiting list somewhere. Um, but that's the shocking reality of where we're at with psychological services. Um, and so I had to go privately, um, and going privately costs big money. And I, I go back to being my council houseboy with a big chip on my shoulder um, when there is such degree of social inequality. Um, and uh, it, it really, really upsets me. Um, so I was able to afford to go privately to get and fantastic psychological um, support. Um, I met the most remarkable psychologist and she um, worked with me with techniques um, around well-being, which I, I hold on to now and, and incorporate into my life now. Um, but what if you are unable to afford private uh, care? And, and indeed, such are the private services now swamped that uh, maybe even if you can afford it, you can't get a place because you might wait six, eight, ten weeks um, to do that. And so that grinds away in my gut um, that we don't have um, equity across our, our provision in healthcare and indeed in other sectors as well. Having said that, the other edge of that is that uh, the psychiatric service that I received, the psychiatric care that I received um, from myself, psychiatrist, was utterly immediate and, and exemplary and, and un undoubtedly saved my life. Um, and I'd be eternally grateful for, for that. Um, both from my GP and from the consultant psychiatrist. Um, exemplary, compassionate, beautiful year. And it was during that uh, immediate phase where I was um, tried for 50 minutes um, in the psychiatrist's office, uh, believing that I had no future, that there was nothing ahead for me whatsoever. I wanted to be with Cameron. I, I, I wanted to see where he was and, and make sure that he was okay. And... Into the midst of that, the consultant psychiatrist dropped this question on my lap and she said, how are you dealing with the guilt and the shame of losing your son to suicide? And having waited eight months for this moment, um, it, it was like um, an explosion going off inside me because I, I'd been searching for a concept, an understanding, a philosophy, a meaning, and I couldn't find it. And here suddenly she was saying to me, she was, she was calling it out, um, it's guilt and shame, John. Um, and you don't need to have guilt and shame because it, it, it's an essential part of the grief process for you as a suicide 
um, as, as, a, as a father who's lost a son suicide. Uh, but there is an antidote to it. And I said, well, please tell me. And she said, it's called empathy. And, and you need to meet with uh, men and women who've gone through exactly the same experience that you've gone through. And so that took me into sobs, survivors of bereavement by suicide. And I walked into the room in Edinburgh that first night um, and I could not believe it. The room was crowded, the room was full. And 75% of the people in the room had lost a son or a daughter by suicide. And, and suddenly here was empathy. Um, and it was utterly powerful. It, 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 it was utterly, utterly so no need to explain no judgment in the room just absolute love and care and so we sat in that room and it's 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 a private conversation but um, it's not unlike I guess what you might experience at Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I'm, I'm guessing that this is what it looks like at Alcoholics Anonymous just to reassure you um, but you see what your name is, where you're from, and what your association with suicide was. Um, and I could only say my name was John. I couldn't say any more that night. Uh, but in that room, there were people who were three years out from the suicide of a son, eight years out. And in that room that night, I was utterly, utterly challenged that I could get through this um, and that these people here were going to support and love me right through this process. And that's exactly what has happened. Um, and Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide, incredibly powerful charity, um, and the only peer-to-peer -peer support um, charity in the, in the suicide sector across the United Kingdom. Um, and so I'm utterly grateful to them. So grateful am I that I've now trained as a facilitator with SOBS, and I help to facilitate um, the Edinburgh group um, as a result of that. Um, and and it's shocking for me still um, when I go to one of our meetings and there's a new person there. And believe me, there are new people there every single time we, we have suicidal crisis in the United Kingdom. Um, and so men and women turn up and they tell the story that I told two and a half years ago with that utter brokenness and despair. And it gets me every single time. And, and, and I pray that it gets me forever because it's the thing that has driven me to to this place of um, leadership for this new charity, um, but also um, hopefully a place of leadership within the suicide community in Scotland, because I believe there is much more that we need to do to work together. Indeed, one of the aims of our charity is that we pull together um, everyone who's working in the suicide sector in Scotland um, into a place where we can genuinely pull uh, together to speak with one voice, because um, uh, our politicians who make decisions about financial spend and about resources and um, about healthcare resources, they need to hear from us with one voice as to what this community um, requires. And so that's a major aim as a charity alongside our, our educational aims. Um, and so um, that's that's the story of, of where we've arrived at really as a, as a family, as, as we've started the charity of family trust. Um, and it's become really a major job for me. So I'm the inaugural chairman of the Canmore Trust. Um, and I said that I would take it through to the, the end of this first phase, establishing us as a charity and setting up our aims and objectives, um, setting up our core values. Um, and then I'm going to hand that over, that chairman's role to someone else, because um, that's not the role that I want to have going forward. I'm 
Bobby Gibson, so I'm, I can speak and I'm, I can speak in, the, in, in public in front of people and it doesn't phase me to do that. And so that's the role that I, I really want to, to, to take forward um, in the suicide sector. So what, at what stage was it? I mean, have you, had you been involved with charities before? At, at what stage was it that you realised that you wanted to, to set up the Canmore Trust? And can you talk to us a little bit about the meaning of it and the, 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 the goals? Because it seems it's very prevention-based. It, it is. Um, and indeed, that was a big challenge for us as a family because um, the the... The feeling of the family was that we should pull back um, and uh, work together at our own healing. Um, and then I came across the work of David Kessler. David Kessler is an American psychologist who's done a huge amount of work on grief. And, and if any of you who are listening to this are struggling in any way with, with, with grief, um, even uh, death of a, of a grandmother or a grandfather or, 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 or anything that's impacting you from a grief viewpoint, then feel free, please, to look at David Kessler's work because he's a, he's a very, um, uh, he's, a, he's a great author around this. And, and looking at his work, I realised that I was grieving differently um, from other people round about me. So there are five different types of grief. Who, who would have known that? I, I didn't know that from, from my time in education. So I was grieving differently from Isabel, my wife. I was grieving differently from my kids. I was grieving differently from, from Cameron's friends and, and, and his colleagues. Um, and one of the things I identified early on was that I was on a two-way street with my grief. So um, as I met other people who were impacted with similar types um, of experience, as I walked with them and talked with them, yes, I, it broke my heart. And, and, and yes, it, um, it made me just relive what we'd gone through and, and the trauma of that and the difficulty of that. At the same time, it was very impacting of me positively and empathetically with, with, with these other folks. Um, and so I realised that um, this had to be a two-way street, that it couldn't just be me taking, 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 that I had to give. Um, and, and that in that giving, there was there was healing um, and there was restoration for me as well. Um, and so in, initially, um, I... Uh, I said, I'm going to put a tent on my back uh, and I'm going to walk from Land's End to Johnny Groats long before the charity was established because um, I realised that being in the great outdoors was hugely healing for me. Listening to birdsong, watching buzzards soar on thermals, watching red kites, um, listening to gold crests, um, amazing. Um, and so I said to Isabel, I'm going to walk from Land's End to Johnny Groats. And then this jolly thing called COVID came along and put the kibosh and all of that. Um, and it was during that time that um, we decided as a family that we would um, the charity. And so when the charity was established, and uh, that takes a bit of work, um, uh, believe me, it takes a bit of work. Um, but at the same time, COVID then eased. Um, and I thought, well, we've got the charity established. Um, I want to open this whole debate across the United Kingdom. And that's when the social media platform Hashtag one man walking, a million talking uh, came along. And I thought if I'm going to open up this conversation, meeting people across the country, then we may as well raise some uh, some money as well for our charity, for the, the, the meaty aims of our charity. And so it's come together. And as you may be aware, I'm now um, coming to the end of week four. Um, and I'm currently in Abergavenny um, uh, in a lovely home, uh, to us by 
local dentist here and his family. Um, and uh, it's a rest day today, so hence I can have this conversation with you. But otherwise, we're walking 20, 20 to 23 miles a day um, as we come up to the country. And the great work, um, achievement is that we've reached 25% of the way, so we're a quarter of the way um, across this um, trek um, in, in across the United Kingdom. And we plan to reach uh, John O'Groats on the 27th um, of August. Um, and prior to that, we have a major meet and greet event in the Meadows in, in, on the 6th of August, uh, where we've invited um, family, friends, colleagues, uh, those affected by suicide, families, uh, charities across the suicide sector to come together uh, just to rejoice with us that we've managed to reach as far as, um, as the Meadows. And then from there, we head further north and, and hit John O'Groats home. So you, you just, how long is the land's end to John O'Groats? Uh, 1,200 miles. So you say, I'm going to go and do this walk. What was the response? What's the support been like through pl the planning stage to now here today in week four? And what are the stories that you've come across? Oh, it's it's it's. There will be a book written because uh, the, the experiences are such that I have to write it. So, um, and just as an aside, um, one of the things that I've found most helpful in my whole leadership journey um, has been journaling. Um, so I journal it, and I have journaled most of my life. Um, journaling being an opportunity not just to keep a diary, but to actually reflect on what has happened during the course of your day or week. Um, and and it's a powerful tool to look back on um, when you face difficulties as, as a leader. So I really encourage those who are listening in to, to if you don't already do it, to, to think about journaling. Uh, so I'm, I'm journaling avidly as, as I go and I'm keeping a note of um, the, the people that I've met and the things that have happened. So um, essentially what happened was um, the Arnold Clark organisation um, offered us a brand new Citroen Relay van, 6.3 metre wheelbase van to as, as a camper van convert. Um, and uh, we got that free of charge from them, huge donation from them, and they allowed us to buy one um, at cost price. So we have two beautiful camper vans that have been re-equipped. And the plan was that they would be our support vehicles um, as we travelled the length of the country. Um, and then Ian Mills, uh, a dentist who was in the year below me at my dental school in Glasgow, um, Ian was in contact just to he said he'd heard that this was happening. And his practice um, is in, uh, in Devon. And he said, I don't think you really want two 6.3 metre wheelbase camper vans down to Devon, Cornwall and North Somerset um, during early summer because the roads here get very busy and it's quite difficult to navigate. So he said, I'm going to take this on. Um, I'm going to, it's the dental profession that's going to look after you from Land's End right through to um, effectively um, when we leave Abergavenny at, at the weekend. Um, we've been looked after entirely by the dental profession. Um, so these four weeks, and um, we've been lifted up, we've been set down, we've been fed, we've been watered, uh, we've lived in some remarkable places, remarkable locations, and that's so helped this journey for us. So, so that's really helped um, opening up the conversation. But um, also when we're walking, um, uh, the conversations that have opened up are remarkable. So we were, we were just, just at Land's End. We hadn't even started the walk. Uh, and we're wearing, uh, I've got my Canmore Trust t-shirt on today. We, we're wearing um, gear that allows people to understand the reasons for our walk. 
um, and this couple walked up to us um, and said, um, you're walking for a, for, a, for a suicide charity and please have a donation. So they gave us a donation and then said, the lady said, um, I, I lost my sister um, to suicide and she was 15 years old and we don't talk about her. Um, and you've really encouraged me to go and talk about her. Um, and that's the conversation that we're opening up. Just a, a few, that same day as we got round the coast, um, there is sadly a, 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 a very infamous place uh, on the coastline of the, the southwest coastal park where um, suicide is, is not infrequent. Um, and we met an older couple. I, 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 they walked towards me and, and he had tears rolling down his face and he said, um, I, I lost my best friend's husband um, to suicide on that cliff. Um, just recently, just at the weekend, and I don't know how to react. I, I, I don't know what to do with this grief. I, I don't know um, how to even speak to her. Um, can you help me? So we sat on the grass in beautiful sunshine and we had half an hour together as we talked about what I had found helpful in those acute days and what I had found unhelpful. And so that conversation opens up um, and those are examples of the conversations that we've, we've had um, as we've walked um, across the country. And I have no doubts these conversations will continue. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Sadly, that all of us now in, in today's society do know someone that has been either directly impacted or at least a friend of a friend. And it's important to, to start the conversations and around prevention. So, so, so 17 suicides a day in the United Kingdom, 17 suicides a day. And internationally across the world, there is one death by suicide every 45 seconds. And has that accelerated with the pandemic? Do we, know we don't know yet? We don't we don't know the answer to that yet. Um I I, I we we don't have those figures yet. Um there was an expectation that the most recent figures would show um a rise and they haven't. Um it's been largely stable. Um there's a slight increase um in middle-aged women, um and, and that's a little bit of a worry, um, I guess. And where there is an increase is in the very young people. So um too many suicides um, between childhood right through to 19, and that's that's a, that's a concern and a growth area. And again, one of the reasons that we must speak directly in schools, um, not just about well-being, not just about mental health, but specifically about suicide and its impact, as well as this relatively new concept of suicide safety planning. There are now three major studies across the globe which say that if you deal directly with suicide in schools and also this concept of suicide safety planning, that in 10 year follow up, the communities served by those schools show a significant reduction, not only in completed suicide, but also in, in attempted suicide as well. So that has to be a priority for the educational system. Absolutely. What, what in, in terms of, you know, hearing your story and Cameron's story, what, what can we do in the teams that we work in to sort of influence and create a supportive environment, you know, that collectively works towards this suicide prevention? 
I, I think what, what there is one word that sums up, I think, what we need to be and do as a society, and it's kindness. Um, and, and I think we need to generate um, workplaces that are kind to their workforce. Um, so healthcare uh, is in the receipt of phenomenal numbers of complaints. Cameron had had a complaint against him as a young vet, um, and it turned out to be a spurious complaint, but I've got no doubts that that impacted Cameron um, significantly. Now, we know from the literature that there is never one factor uh, that causes someone to take their life. It's a multiplicity of factors. It's, it's pieces of the jigsaw going down in place. But particularly those listening in who work in a healthcare context, it is very hard going when a major complaint comes in. I, I was in receipt of a complaint just, just before I stopped work, um, which went to GDC and, and GMC. Um, and um, I'm, I'm delighted to see that it, 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 there was no case to answer. The, the, Clinical assessor's report was glowing, um, but but that's no consolation really when you're in the midst of seeing your your whole professionalism base eroded, and so we have to do something about complaints and expectation in healthcare in particular, and I think that's going to take a government lead. Um, there needs to be a governmental lead on that, but it will also involve the regulators. It will involve um, those who are involved in in uh, supporting doctors, dentists, uh, other healthcare workers, the indemnity organisations. It was going to take a unified approach to, to speak to society and say, our doctors and dentists, our vets and our healthcare workers are human beings. They didn't set out this morning to cause any difficulty or harm for you. That They're working so hard to make things work for you. And sometimes, folks, things go wrong. And, and we have to accept that. But unfortunately, when things go wrong, often people misplace their grief in, into anger and resentment and, and bitterness. And, and again, helping people through that phase um, is something that would be would be really helpful. And I think there's a huge role for mediation in healthcare. Uh, there's a, there's a need for us to have a national mediation service in healthcare, so that it doesn't. We don't need to take people to the regulator for relatively minor difficulties. We need to keep the regulators for when things go Harold Shipman wrong. Uh, we, we need to keep um, our, our, our doctors, dentists away from the regulator. Um, and, and a national mediation service, I think. And on, a, on an individual and personal level, what, what can we do uh, in terms of kindness and looking out for one another around yeah. both the prevention of and then the you know the unfortunate when you when you do have a friend or a colleague that's affected by suicide in those immediate days and months okay so um, the first thing i would say is if you're a leader and um, unburden those that you lead um, so so make life simpler and more enjoyable for individuals ask individuals in your team is today a good day are you enjoying your work and how could things be made better for you? So having that open dialogue um, is, is, is hugely important. But then when you see things going um, awry with individuals, so if you see people drinking more, if you see people's behaviour becoming a little bit different, have the knowledge and the insight to be able to ask the question, are things okay with you? Um, and very importantly, to ask, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? 
and to be gentle but fearless in asking that question because the literature is very clear that asking that question can and will save a life. Um, and never have any fear that by raising suicide with an individual that you will put that idea into their head. The literature is also very clear that that does not and, and then when you, uh, in your families or in your communities, and I hope this never happens to you, but if you cross or meet someone that has been affected by suicide, then walk with them. Talk about the person who has died. Don't shy away from that. And the, the question that I love people to ask me is, what are your thoughts of Cameron today? Because my thoughts of Cameron change. If it's his birthday, then you won't get an answer from me. You'll get tears and snorters. But today's a good day, so I can talk to you lovingly and openly about, about Cameron, and it brings me delight, and it brings me healing. So don't be fearful about talking um, about people who have died by suicide. Make that an easy journey for, for those who are affected. But also think about SOBs, think about the Canmore Trust, and think about other organisations nationally um, and locally, uh, where you can not just signpost people to, because there's a danger in signposting that you think you've done your job, don't just signpost people to it. Go with them and take them and make sure that they're in a, in a good place um, and a safe place. Uh, that is their safe space, to put it into the words of, of the Canmore Trust. Fantastic. Thank you for that advice. I think on a personal note, I don't know if I would ever name it to someone. Uh, so knowing that the literature says to do so really is practically help, helpful. Very important. So in a, in, a, in a sort of letting people know more about your journey and keeping track of where you are, eh, what's the best place to track your progress and, and to engage? And so I, I know that you're on social media channels, but can you, can you sort of share with our audience where they might be able to follow your journey? Yep. So the best place to get me is on Instagram at hashtag one man walking a million talking. Hashtag one man walking a million talking. But also, if you go to the Canmore Trust, all one word, dot co dot uk, um, uh, and in the top bar, um, there is um, one man walking, um, and you can uh, find out there uh, where I am on any particular day, and follow the Just Giving page link there. Um, that's not just um, an overt fee for for funding from you or from for for donations from you, but um, please do feel free to give if you would like to do that. But also the lead um, uh, to the just giving, the link to the just giving page, um, will also give you in real time uh, where we're at it at, at any one time as we walk our many miles um, each day. So please, please join us. Think about walking with us, and um, particularly um, if it's a, in a, a place local to you, uh, come and walk with us for an hour. Come and walk with us for a whole day, um, and come and join in this national conversation about bringing suicide into the light. I know you. You'll be on to the next challenge. But the the the, the funds that you're you're raising, like what practically way are these going to be used? And in, in terms, is it the prevention strategy that you you really want to sort of hyperspeed along, or do you have thoughts on that yet as as a charity? Well, our, our five guts aims are actually cross suicide prevention and postvention. Um, and I had a I really um great meeting recently uh, with the suicide leads um, from across the various councils um, in Scotland. 
And of the five gutsy aims, um, the two that they felt were most important um, currently uh, for us as a nation were the provision of safe spaces uh, for families affected by suicide. So places that people could go in the immediate post-suicide phase if they've lost a son or a daughter, mother or father. Um, and so uh, the funds that are raised in this walk are likely to be used directly for the purchase of um, uh, our first and probably our second, um, if we reach our financial target anyway, our first and second uh, places um, where people will be able to go at no cost to them. Um, and if, if they would like to work with a lived experienced counsellor um, in those early phases of grief um, to allow them to, to see that um, they might just get through to tomorrow and indeed next week, next month um, and even next year. Um, so that would be a priority for us. Um, but also in the prevention sector, um, the uh, national leads felt that it would be appropriate uh, for us to work very um, assiduously at drawing all charities and agencies in the suicide prevention sector together uh, and to begin to work and speak with one voice to help each other and to see who has strengths in certain areas um, and how we could build those and grow those um, and how we can help each other to, to speak nationally with one voice because there are individuals that have that raise a thousand pounds a year um, and have uh, people sitting in their front room um, and, and they need to be at the table with a voice as much as the chief executive of Sam H or the chief executive of Samaritans in Scotland. They are equally as important partners. And we want those individuals to be at the same table and to have this building uh, discussion um, around what our next steps might be uh, in both suicide prevention and suicide. Yeah, the principles of both co-design and co-production really are key here as, as they are across the rest of the public services, aren't they? Indeed so. so I'd just like to thank you on a very personal note. Uh, I'd like to thank you for continuing to be an inspiration to me personally and to many other healthcare professionals. As I said to you before we started the recording, this was by popular request that we have you on the podcast. I'd like to thank you for the work that you're doing for the suicide prevention and postvention community <clears throat> and I look forward to joining you on that journey. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today and I'd encourage everyone to look at the Canmore Trust website. Thanks so much Thomas, it's been a privilege to be with you um, and uh, I, I, it's just been a delight to have this conversation with you and I, I hope that uh, it, it has helped someone um, not just in their leadership journey, but also um, for those of you who may have had those suicidal thoughts um, or you know those who have, um, yeah, I, I hope the discussion today has um, encouraged you to, to, to think, to believe and to work towards that um, you might just want to stay around um, and uh, see this world as a better place. Come and join us on that journey. Thank you.